Welcome to Affect Autism. We have a very interesting topic this week that I've never discussed at the blog, which is autism and medication. And I think we might even get into medication in general, not necessarily specifically for autism. We have with us a returning guest, Dr. Joshua Fader. And he, let me read his uh, qualifications here. He is a child and family psychiatrist in San Diego, Del Mar, and Solana Beach, California. He is also the father of a grown autistic son. He is using the Developmental Individual Differences Relationship-Based, or DIR model. He is an expert DIR training leader, a faculty member with both the Interdisciplinary Council on uh, Development and Learning and the um, Profectum, and an adjunct faculty with Fielding Graduate University in the Child and Infant Development PhD program, and an associate clinical professor and depart in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California at San Diego School of Medicine. Did I get all that correct? Um, yeah, but let me just add a couple things. Since we're talking about medication today, it might be helpful for people to know that I was um, in on the first practice parameters for uh, 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 diagnosing and management of autism from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry um, back in 1999. And I still sit on a uh, policy work group for um, autism and intellectual disabilities at the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, where I'm currently trying to help craft um, a policy for that you know, national organization, international actually, to um, promote access to care for all evidence-based practices, including DIR. But you know, as part of that, I've been in discussions about medication and autism for many decades. I've done some pharmaceutical um, research, uh, NIH-funded, not so much pharma-funded. And I'm now editor-in-chief of the Carlat Child Psychiatry Report, which is a um, non-pharma transparency-based uh, newsletter continuing education vehicle for child psychiatrists. So I'm helping craft training uh, for child psychiatrists in the use of medications, including, of course, for um, people who have autism spectrum disorder. Well, suffice it to say, you're a very busy guy, huh. and and I love uh, I love having you as a person to ask questions because you have all of this genuine interest, being the father of an autistic son, and also you mentioned a lot of the um, non-pharmaceutical type things that you're working on. Um, you're very genuine in your approach and you're very genuine in your intent to help others and to spread the, the respectful approach to people with intellectual disabilities. And um, I love that. And that's why um, we can't wait to discuss this today. So welcome. Well, I have to say, yeah, you're very, it's great to be here always with you, Daria. I mean, one of the things that's just so important to start with is that I see medications as a tool to support a good plan, not to try to replace a plan. And so, you know, most of my thinking is DIR type thinking. And then if somebody's not very well regulated, you know, what kind of medicine might help someone to just be regulated enough to be able to engage and then have a flow of interaction. And that's 95% of what I think about when I'm thinking about, um, uh, most people, including people um, on the spectrum um, or people who define themselves as autistic. I get into this people first, not people first stuff. I know some people would rather be called autistic 
Um, a lot of people would rather be people first. Uh, I don't know. Whatever works is fine. But I think the bottom line with medication is that I try to remember what my grandmother always told me. And I probably said this to you and I say it to a lot of the families I work with. She always said, be the surgeon who knows when not to cut. And I feel like with medications, know when it makes sense to use them. But it's not just medications. You know, a lot of people say, oh, I won't go to medications unless it's a last resort. I get that. Nobody wants to put things in them. But it's true of a lot of things that I think people uh, might want to do to try to help something be better. A lot of the other potions, a lot of the supplements and things aren't necessarily safe. So, and we don't always have the research that we want on those. So we've got a lot of research on medications and we know a lot about side effects. Well, we don't always have the same information about other things. Like CBD is the best example because I get so many people coming to me saying, well, look, it's natural. It's you know the safer part of weed. Why don't we just give our kids CBD? And my answer is, well, there's one study out of Israel that shows that it's, oh, cannabis. Uh, yeah, the cannabinoid oil from uh, marijuana. <clears throat> okay. So, um, so there's one study out of Israel that seems to show that it might help some people with intractable seizures. But, you know, once you get beyond that, you get a lot of hype. A lot of people want to sell it. A lot of marketing. Reminds me of Pycnogenol 30 years ago. Buy Pycnogenol. It will make you better. But no research. Um, very little on, uh, on these uh, on cannabinoids and CBD oil. And yet we do have very clear um, research showing a doubled rate of psychosis with weed writ large, you know, with THC in it. We've got amotivational syndromes. We've got depression. Um, psychosis, uh, like I said. I mean, there's just a lot of problems associated with things that have been associated with CBD oil. And of course, now that more people are using it, we're getting more uh, side effect reports. I could actually pull them out. But the point is that when something's new, whether it's a medication or it's some new supplement, everybody's like saying, oh, this is going to work. Um, but then the more experience you have, the more you find that maybe, maybe it, it didn't work. And if I could just I'm on a roll, so if I can keep rolling. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that happens a lot of times is something we call regression to the mean. I'm going to draw a little graph and show it to you. This is a little sinusoidal wave. Do you see it there? That's somebody's symptoms getting worse or better, right? And when things get a little bit worse, I don't know if I'm pointing to the right part, I can't see. A lot of times you do something, but in the natural course of things, maybe it was going to get better anyway, but then you attribute this to why it got better, whether it was related or not. And so plenty of times, if you think you have something that works, you have to kind of try it, stop it, try it again, and see if you get a real correlation between whether that thing works or not, rather than just saying, oh, that works, and then you're set for life with that. You must do things that way. Um, you can get really stuck. The other thing is placebo effects. So most things, if you believe in them, work pretty well. And so you'll see a lot of Studies that come out, open label studies, we call them, where somebody just gave people a certain treatment or potion or whatever you want to call it. Um, doesn't have to be medication, could be anything. And, um, and half the people get better. You know, they seem to be better. Well, you know, if you did a control group and you did some other kind of thing with them, half of them would get better too. Um, we've had that problem with antidepressant medications, right? Where when you're trying to use them for depression in children, we're not talking spectrum at the moment, but when you're trying to use them in dep for depression in children and you compare it to placebo, like blank pills, 
about the same amount often get better. Now, there are some studies showing antidepressants edging out placebo a little bit. In anxiety disorders, they, they're much more clearly beneficial more of the time. And there's side effects. We can talk about those if you want. But, um, but with depression, it's been a little bit iffy. Now, I know, I think maybe other people listening know people who have, their lives have been saved by antidepressant medication, no question. But, you know, in terms of doing group studies, it's kind of hard to prove that placebo effect is, um, is frequent. Now, some people would say, well, who cares? Just give them a placebo and they get better. The problem with placebo is that it usually wears off in about four to six weeks. And then it's not working, you're back to something else. So when people try something, when their symptoms are high and they're trying something, and then it didn't work about four to six weeks later, well, there's a, a decent chance that you were talking regression to the mean, so your symptoms are going to go up and down anyway, and you had a placebo effect for the thing that you were trying. Yeah, absolutely, and you brought up a, a couple of things. Um, certainly, the neurologist that we worked with, with our son who had severe brain inflammation, I've had conversations with him um, over the years since it happened. He's about your age and, and about the same years of experience and he said to me right off the bat because we had stored uh, stem cell cord blood at birth and I've seen you know studies that uh, stem cells in autism can help improve certain functioning etc and I've asked him about it and and he says the same thing for for everything which I'm sure you agree with which is um, there's always going to be fads like you mentioned and over time research tends to weed out what doesn't work and what does work. And you always want to wait to see that there's consensus and um, <clears throat> studies that continue, continually show a, a benefit that's worth it rather than putting your family through not only an enormous expense, but also um, if there's surgery involved, that's quite risky and all of these other things. Um, and, and the other point you make about uh, people, um, people tend to want instant gratification, right? So something's wrong. I want to make it better. You're a doctor. Help me out. And it's just like when we do play therapy, floor time. It, it's, it's not this scripted, wrote, do this, see this result. It is one of those things that is trial and error. And you see what happens over time. And you have an expert guiding you along. In, in your case, uh, a medical professional who will know what medications would be the best match for you, if at all. And, and like you said, it's, it's a source of trial and error over time to just make sure that everything's correct. Um, you mentioned side effects. I know that um, I've heard stories from parents whose children have seizures where they'll have to keep switching medications every few months. Um, somebody talked about their child having urinary incontinence, which is a very severe side effect, and what to do about that. But at the same time, um, they may be seeing less seizure activity. So it's it's a balancing act, and and I it's it, I imagine it's it's a very difficult decision for families. And what we want always is this cut and dry: do this, everything's going to be better. And the last point about what you talked about, I wanted to say was the importance of the fact that you're a medical professional who takes an oath, which is totally different from all of the um, other supplement, 
people pushing all of these other kinds of therapies and scams that they very well might believe in and they feel like they're doing well. But when there's really no evidence to back it up and they're putting um, people possibly at risk, and there's a lot of cases of, of people that have had very severe results from um, different types of uh, naturopathic and other types of, of things that the practitioners aren't necessarily taking the same kind of oath and and commitment to science where it's trial and error and seeing what works over time and being open to the fact that maybe you're wrong and whatever what other evidence leads us in a different direction so um kind of a lot of higher level things that we're talking about but but these, these, these are important. Look, um, research is often limited. Um, think about it this way. For many of the people listening, you might have a couple conditions going on, maybe a little high blood sugar at this age, maybe a little high blood pressure. So sugar pressure, just those two things, very common. And there's medications for them that show you can lower your blood pressure, lower your blood sugar a little bit. Um, but there are going to be very few studies uh, showing what combinations with those two conditions are effective. So the point is that when you have you know, somebody who we're working with who has a number of different challenges going on, and remember our definitions of conditions in psychiatry, mental health, writ large, um, are less precise than we'd like them to be. We've got these categories from DSM, but they don't really describe real people, and everybody's kind of in gray zones for whether it's obsessive compulsive disorder or ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, they're these mishmashes, and we don't fully understand them. So you're trying to treat a couple different things, right, with a couple different medications sometimes or other kinds of treatments, and it's rare that there's going to be a study that talks about you as an individual and the combination of treatments that you're getting. And so we're left with, like you say, just trying to wend our way through a jungle uh, together where you hope that me or some other medical professional is a decent guide and an ethical one and trying not to harm you and trying to find paths that might work, which are very much trial and error. And those trials need to be you know, decent trials. If you try a medicine for a day, you get a few side effects, you quit immediately. Well, sometimes they're overwhelming and you really can't stay with it. But a lot of times, you actually need to stay with things long enough to find out if they're going to work and you have to have some patience. And we know that just from, you know, working with anybody, uh, spectrum issues or not, um, things change over time. A lot of us are developing human beings just neurologically, a little kid growing, you know, over years and, you know, kind of developmental epics, even for adults, um, we're changing and developing all the time. And so, to me, the question isn't so much can you fix something immediately, but can you start to bend a trajectory using whatever means you can, oftentimes environmental, sometimes psychological, and occasionally with medicines or potions to try to help things uh, move in a better direction. The likelihood of having um, you know, one decent research uh, study on what ails you with the treatment that you're uh, looking at is relatively low, generally speaking. The likelihood of having two decent research studies is really low. And I often uh, talk about, I think it's my adage, one, one plus one equals truth. If you have one study that actually showed that something worked, usually there's a tolerance for, for error that, you know, there may be a one in 20 chance that it was like the sample you happened to pick or just 
you know, by sheer luck, it happened to work. And actually, in the past, some pharmaceutical companies, I believe, um, would take advantage of that by doing 20 studies on their uh, drug, finding the one that worked, submitting that to the US FDA, you know, Food and Drug Administration, getting an approval when the medicine didn't work very well at all. Now we actually have transparency laws about that, that you have to, if you're going to publish a study, you actually have to register it ahead of time. And now if you fail to report on a study that you registered, there's supposed to be a penalty. They haven't imposed it yet. But I think, I want to say $10,000 a day for, for not reporting on it. So you can't just play that shell game anymore. But, and, and with that, by the way, we now have new studies coming out showing lack of efficacy of medications. Two recent ones showing that desvenlafaxine um, doesn't work in kids. Okay, well, that's, that's good news that we have these negative studies being published. But what I'm getting back to is that if you have a decent study showing something works, let's say a, a good like Rick Solomon study showing DIR works, um, it's rare to have a second study that shows something works, both with that same uh, uh, tolerance for error. But if you have two of them, that's far more powerful. Now, insurance companies have actually relied on that sort of uh, level of thinking for a number of years here in the U.S., they would say, unless you have two decent studies showing that the medicine that you're proposing, the expensive medicine that you're proposing, works for the um, condition that you're uh, using it for, we're not going to pay for it. Um, so they actually knew something smart in terms of science and a high bar. And it's a high bar because a lot of people just don't do the research or they don't do it well. So... Sorry, siren coming by. One of my one of my mentors um, always said, "When a siren goes by, just think good things for whoever they're going to try to help." You know, you talk about some side effects, incontinence um, you know, being one of them, uh, particularly with anti-seizure uh, uh, medications that we also use often for mood stabilization. Valproate, Depakote comes to mind because it's often pretty effective or it's part of a combination of others. A lot of people are incontinent, a lot of people are drooling. Um, so we both run into these same kinds of problems where you're struggling to find uh, medication or a combination of medications to help something, whether it's out of control dysregulation or seizures or, or something else. And the price you pay in side effects is very high. But, but it reminds me to remind listeners to think about ketogenic diets, which haven't had enough um, research, but um, talk with your doctor about the possibility if you've got intractable seizures that it's kind of like an Atkins diet, that a ketogenic diet might be helpful, um, these high fat diets. So don't just do it based on my words. I mean, obviously you need to talk to your own doctor about it, but, um, but it is something to consider and has its own set of side effects, but uh, is often very helpful when people are pretty stuck. Yeah, let's let's get into how do you determine when is medication necessary versus when it isn't. And let me give you an example. Um, the example is usually my son because it's my blog. And <laughs> my son is uh, turning nine. <clears throat> he had severe brain, brain inflammation at age two. He's been recovering very nicely. He is autistic and the more I've learned, the more I've come to believe that he's been autistic since birth, despite having no quote unquote signs of uh, warning signs for autism before the brain inflammation. Um, according to the medical people we've discussed it with, uh, I now know having been trained in DIR that there probably were some warning signs like lots of sensory issues, 
uh, maybe a slight, slight, slight uh, deficit in joint attention, robust joint attention, even though it, it was there. Um, and so the brain inflammation did whatever it did, made a lot of more challenges for our son. And his biggest challenge for sure is regulation, like many kids on the spectrum. He's moving nicely through the functional, emotional, developmental capacities outlined in the DIR model. He's moving forward developmentally, uh, socializing with peers. His language has exploded. He's starting to show great interest in wanting to read. All of these wonderful things. He can carry lots of back and forth interactions. Um, he's starting to learn about taking another person's perspective, although it's still a bit of a challenge. He's showing less impulse control, but we still have regulation throughout the day being a major challenge. And the neurologist suggested to us, if there's some anxiety and regulation, we can look into medications for that. And my reaction is, no way, I don't even wanna think about medication. Um, and he was on seizure medication for a couple of years after his brain inflammation due to his un unstable EEGs. But luckily he was able to go off of that medication and, and I felt the sigh of relief because the thought of having to depend on medication scared me. Now, in my case, the people I've spoken with agree we should try floor time and these kinds of methods, they've been working well, so let's hold off on, on medication. But how do you determine that when people come to you and um, I hear stories from so many parents that the schools put them on, um, oh, what's that uh, famous um, Medicaid, Ritalin. <laughs> um, all these kids going on Ritalin because they're too hyperactive. Well, maybe it's just that they can't sit still all day. Maybe there's nothing wrong with them. It's just that the school is providing conditions that they can't meet because they're an active child. So how do you determine with your background in floor time, when is medication necessary? Poor progress is probably the biggest um, factor. You know, when, when you're doing everything you can and you're just not making headway, um, then I think a lot of people wanna, you know, search around for something else that might help and to see whether medication might target uh, some particular things that may be getting in the way. The big ones, dysregulation's a big one, you know, just being very sensitive to falling apart. There's all kinds of ways people might be falling apart. It might be distractibility. It might be kind of emotional dysregulation. It might be just poor sleep. Um, there may be nutritional things and somebody's just not eating very well and even your DIR and food chaining aren't working very well. So you almost have to kind of list out all the different things that you're worried about, prioritize them, and think if we could make this or this better, would it have kind of a downstream effect making everything better? So I've got a lot of people who just don't seem to neurologically sleep. Um, I think they need it, they just can't do it. Um, do you call that bipolar? Do you call it something? I don't know. You know, there's a lot of ways to go after it, but once the person is sleeping, they do a lot better, you know? And, or, or, and, and then the question is, well, why weren't they, you know, you also have to make sure they don't have like obstructive sleep apnea. You don't want to give medication to somebody who's not breathing well. Um, and that's why they're not sleeping well. So I would say poor progress and what are the things that feed into that? The other is safety issues. If you've got people who are just very dangerous in what they're doing, they're running off into traffic, um, and you're working hard to do things that might make that better. We had a famous uh, class action lawsuit in California in 2010. It's a DIR uh, lawsuit that we won. 
but uh, part of it was predicated on the idea that some people had had, for instance, behavioral methods to try to help them, you know, be safe, um, and it wasn't working. Um, you know, reward, et cetera, wasn't wasn't doing the job. But the DIR was. People were building relationships, and so they were able to connect. And so, very much like Greenspan used to say, once you build the relationship, then the rules make sense, come in, and the person wants to be with you anyway. So anyway, DIR was working. They took the DIR away by fiat in this part of uh, East LA, and then it was endangering people. So that was a, uh, a lawsuit about getting DIR back in for the safety of people. Well, similarly, if you're already doing that stuff and it's not working very well, um, and there are safety issues, then climbing too much and it's dangerous, uh, then sometimes uh, medication might be uh, indicated for something like that, severe violence, severe self-injurious behavior, where people might be, I do this because I remember somebody who scratched themselves and it was getting infected and it was life-threatening. And we were able to use medication, for instance, to, I don't know why it worked, but it worked and the person stopped doing that. And actually, they were better regulated and they started doing other things like cooking and horseback riding and communicating and, you know, just made a, made a big difference. So poor progress, safety issues. And then the other piece is, what about the safety of the medications? Look, a lot of people will say, well, I don't want to give medications because they're, you know, they're dangerous, you know, writ large, all dangerous. Well, you know, that's not exactly true. There are a lot of supplements that are dangerous. There are a lot of medications that are dangerous, but there are a lot of supplements that are benign. There are a lot of medications that are very benign, very safe to use. A great example, and one that I think more and more people use as their first foray into medication, is um, uh, guanfacine, uh, uh, also known as 10X, and repackaged in a more expensive, quote-unquote, long-acting variety as uh, Intuniv uh, in the U.S. a few years ago. But basically, it's a medicine that knocks down your fight-flight system just a little bit. So for some people, it's just enough to help them feel a little bit more regulated, a little bit more of the time, and they do well. They might sleep better if you give a little bit more at night. They might be a little bit more regulated during the day, can help with ticks. I mean, it's like, great, but it's very mild. And for some people, my experience is that if you're the kind of kid who you get a lot calmer just before you're coming down with a cold, that kind of medicine is often very helpful. If you're the kind of kid who gets really cranky right before you're coming down with a cold, that medicine is often not helpful and you get cranky instead. But having said that, it's incredibly safe. And there's others that are pretty safe as well. So they're not necessarily... Can I just ask, what if you're the type of kid that is exactly the same when you get a cold or when you're not? Maybe just a slight bit more tired. Hard to know. Hard to know. <laughs> you know again, every, every use of medication in a human being or in anybody is uh, like a new experiment in nature. So uh, another adage uh, to follow is to start low, go slow, as long as you've got the uh, ability to do that. I mean, in an emergency, sometimes you do, you know, bigger doses faster. Um, another thing to remember is to try to start one thing at a time. If you make three changes, you don't know what helped and what didn't mm -hmm. sometimes, both with medications and with you know, new other things that you might be doing with someone. Again, if you're in kind of an emergency situation, sometimes you have to do several things at once. But most of the time, that's not the case. You're trying to take a difficult situation and, and, and make it better. You know, the point you make, Daria, about... Um, giving people Ritalin so that they'll sit down is a really good one. Um, children are actually meant to be running around. And we have this medieval 
educational system that came from having monks recopy texts back in, you know, hundreds of years ago that we've, um, you know, put into elementary schools. And uh, it, it makes very little sense. Um, and so when a kid won't do it, um, we medicate them to make them do that. It makes, it's just crazy. So I, I like to look for um, teachers who I can work with, um, schools that have different kinds of approaches and policies uh, so that we don't have to be doing things that are um, abnormal for young children. Same thing with teenagers and making them wake up early for school. They're actually built to be up late at night and sleeping in. They guard us when we sleep back when we lived on savannas a couple hundred thousand years ago. But now, you know, because it's more convenient for adults who wake up early, we want to wake them up early and have them meet our schedule. Uh, it's not good for a lot of them, and some people can't tolerate that. I'll give you one more on sleep. So it's probable that um, our cultural belief that you sleep at night is uh, wrong. Um, you sleep in the evening, you get up in the middle of the night, and then you sleep closer to dawn. Two different main epochs of sleep for humans in their natural environment. We now have a cultural overlay that says you have to go to sleep and sleep through the night. And if you wake up in the middle of the night and you want to play or something like that, it's wrong. Well, maybe you just aren't as good at um, uh, being able to adjust to cultural expectations. Um, that's a problem. Another, another cultural expectation, sorry I get on these rolls, is um, that kids should sleep alone at night and you know, let them cry until they do that because they have to be independent. Or even at school, they have to be independent workers. The truth about independent work at school in a typical classroom is that the kids are actually in concert with each other. You see they actually move in similar rhythms non-verbally. They're communicating, they're all in the same uh, page in terms of uh, knowing they need to get their work done, uh, even if they don't necessarily like it or it's not presented in a way that's interesting, which is another problem. But this idea that you have to do your work independently is incredibly wrong-headed. We only work in the context of relationships, even if they're nonverbal, consensual relationships between a whole class, like a school of fish, doing what they're doing. And similarly at night, if your belief is that, oh, children need to sleep by themselves at night and cry it out, I, you may be working, you know, some kids can tolerate that and do just fine during the day, but there are some kids who can't. And so you have to think, okay, are we going to break cultural norms and do something differently so that this child can be regulated? And what's the impact socially, culturally on a marriage? I mean, they're not easy questions. I'm just saying that our assumptions are sometimes um, different from how we grew up as a, as a species. And I'll say one other thing since I'm thinking of it. The minute you give a medicine, it becomes all about the medicine. Do you, have you seen this? So you've got this whole plan. You're trying to use medicine to make it better. And then as soon as that happens, everybody's saying, are the meds right if the kid has a bad day? Now, that may be, but a lot of times it's something else that's going on. Had a bad night's sleep for some other reason. Somebody else is upset. Families under stress, economic stress often. You know, so uh, one really important thing if people decide to uh, use medications is to try to keep things in context. Medication might be something to focus on as part of an overall plan, but it would, when it becomes all about are the pills right, that's misguided thinking. That's giving medication more of a role than it should have. My role when I'm acting as a psychopharmacologist is to support 
everybody else in doing their job and seeing if medication can support it, not to usurp it. Yeah, and that's what I like about the DIR model that we've been talking about, developmental, individual differences, relationship-based model, um, is that it is a team effort and you're working with the other professionals who are all supporting the family, which I think is, is probably rare because a lot of times you have a doctor who never knows anything that's going on with the other therapy you're doing. So um, the collaboration, I think, is important to strive for. And I think there's certainly a move towards that, especially in big cities, at least here I see even in the seven years since our son's um, hospitalization, I see more of a team effort starting to be put in place policy-wise um, down so that there are teams working with, with um, children. But um, <clears throat> yeah, the... I think what you said is so important about how culture has really dictated how we live our lives and, it, and it's too bad because most people can't get around that. You can't get around the fact that you have to get up and go to work every day or you won't have money to live and that affects wh where your kids have to go at what time of day and uh, the fact that they need care all the time and the fact that you need a good night's sleep, this and that. But like you said, sometimes we stab ourselves in the foot by, by forcing these things on our children that they're not ready for. So I was so happy to hear you say the thing about sleep because our son is almost nine and he still sleeps right beside me every night. And I love snuggling up to him and giving him kisses because he's so adorable. <laughs> but a lot of people were horrified when he was a toddler even. And I would say that we're co-sleeping and I breastfed him for so long. Um, which is also not necessarily the norm anymore. So it, it is a personal decision and nobody should be judged for not doing those things. But at the same time, um, just be aware of why you think things should be a certain way because they might not have to be that way. And like you pointed out, in, if you look back in history and our evolution, <laughs> that's not how things always were. Um, so it, it's, it's tricky for sure. I did want to ask you about diagnosing children. So for, certainly for autism, but other, other things as well, because a lot of times there's different, uh, different diagnoses. Some children have multiple diagnoses. So <clears throat> Dr. Greenspan always talked about seeing the best in a child. So when you bring a child into a clinic and there's a stranger there and the child's acting out and then they say, oh, yeah, this, this kid can't function. Well, no wonder, because they're with a stranger, they're in a strange place, they're anxious, whereas he liked to say, go to the home, observe them with the people that they're comfortable around, and see what their best um, behavior looks like, or their, their higher capacities. And I was wondering how that plays in when you are looking to diagnose kids, and then secondly, this whole thing about the diagnosis sort of defining the life, instead of it being a guide to sort of help you along where the child is first and what is the child showing us as opposed to, yeah, anyway. It's a great question. I'm gonna, I think we're gonna need to end with that because I think we're gonna okay, come yep. to the top yes, of the hour. We can, we, we can do another part, but it's a great question. You know, diagnosis, as I said earlier, is kind of ratty. It's not, you know, it's a bit more art than science sometimes. 
And um, I obviously Stanley was one of the people who was such a proponent of seeing the best in the child. T. Barry Brazelton, who just recently passed away, another person who did that. Um, I love the the tagline. Um, now I can't remember the tagline though, but Perfectum uses it. Uh, presume competence. That's what it is. Presume competence, because a lot of times people don't do that. And um, while a lot of clinicians are stuck in their offices, and me too, sometimes I'll do a home visit when I can, I'll go to a school when I can, but realistically, that's not always uh, possible. But I'd like to see people at least twice and maybe more before I start doing a diagnosis, which is radical in this day and age of managed care. I love to have video from home, not Blair Witch video where you're following the child around, but just a video, you know, set it up in the corner. Let's see what, what it looks like when people are playing or, or interacting or trying to. And then I get a lot of other collateral data. I mean, I talk to teachers and therapists and read all the reports. Again, you know, one of the problems is that in our land, in insurance land in the U.S., um, that the insurance won't pay for that time. And so in my world, I, I charge for that time. But on the other hand, how else are you going to know what's going on? Now, usually I see people who've seen a bunch of doctors already and for some reason they haven't figured it out. Well, one of the reasons they haven't figured it out is they haven't had the opportunity to look at all the data uh, of what's happening. And then once you get it all there and kind of get your head around it, you can at least better understand what's going on. And instead of saying a child is bad, a child might be tired, for instance, or at least you think about the different places that you can intervene because usually these situations are very complex and you're doing a lot of different things to try to intervene to make them better one at a time, but layering them in to try to improve um, how things might uh, come out. And then, you know, the bottom line is when you're coming down to giving a diagnosis, um, you know, I, I usually pitch it as, you know, this is a, an idea that we might be working with to see if it leads us to ideas that might help us. But I like to not get too married to a diagnosis. I know too many people who were labeled bipolar as children who got older, grew better, they're not they don't have bipolar in the classic sense for sure. Um, some people who um, uh, flap and so they're diagnosed with autism, but their issue is a sensory integration issue, you know, something like that. Um, and then people who, I don't know, who are, you know, told, you know, your child, whether it's CP or Downs or, or ASD or something like that, you know, these should be your expectations. Don't, don't get them too high. Well, that ends up creating situations where people don't get the opportunities they might have to have fun and meaningful lives. Alternatively, sometimes the expectations are, you know, uh, we need to train your child to do pre-vocational work because everyone needs to learn a, uh, a useful skill. And that turns into enslavement, where you're just railroading people into sorting silverware or something like that. They fight against it and then they're wrong, they're misbehaving and medicated for that. So I guess, I guess the point is that um, there are these biases that are built into us. We're sort of grown like saplings in wind and the winds of bias shape us in ways that we're not even aware of. In fact, some of the research um, that's coming out of fielding is in this whole idea of implicit bias where we're trying to understand how that impacts the recommendations that um, professionals will give to families. Um, and if you're more aware of it, maybe there's something you can do about it so that you can reprogram yourself to a different bias, like presume competence first, rather than not. Because 
you're probably better off presuming competence and being empathic when someone isn't able to do it. I mean, that's the opposite problem. Someone looks normal to you and they do something bad and then you blame them, you say it's their fault because you're presuming competence. So what you presume competence that someone is going to be able to do something and then you're empathic about it in case they're having trouble with it, you're not just blaming them. Complicated, sorry. Um, yeah, and no, the, the thing about presuming competence, I agree 100%, but I've also heard parents say they brought their children when they had concerns when they were young and the doctors say, oh, he's a boy, just give it a few years, and then they end up getting a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder way too late, and they could have started um, working with the child earlier. Now, for me, um, I, I think, um, well, I'm very biased about, um, um, against ABA therapy for young children, so it, in some cases I think that's better that they didn't get shoved into ABA at an early age. But um, yeah, all of these things, there's no cut and dry, black and white, uh, wonderful solutions waiting for us. It's, it's all a matter of juggling all of the evidence and pieces that we can find and doing the best we can. Yeah, and it, it's often complementary, right? It's kind of like a yin-yang thing with competence. So you presume competence on the one hand, but if you're empathic about it, you don't presume badness on the other. Um, with pediatricians and early diagnosis, um, again, more fielding research um, uh, that uh, students are doing PhD candidates includes, should we be listening better to parents? Um, and most of it showing we should. So yeah, I mean, you wanna jump early on things when you're concerned as a parent. Um, you don't necessarily wanna jump with medication, but maybe consider it. Um, and um, you know, I think most of us as parents have to be um, kind of pushy. Uh, Stanley used to call them RPM, really pushy moms, um, get things done. Well, I think I'm one of those moms, <laughs> for better or for worse, at different occasions. <laughs> but um, I, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to discuss all of these issues with us. It was sort of like a, a whirlwind. We could have had 20 podcasts with the topics that we discussed today. But um, if, if listeners are interested in, in something that we've talked about, uh, go to the full blog post at affectautism.com. There's a comment section. Let us know um, your questions, your stories, your comments, anything that might interest you for the future. I'm sure Dr. Fader will, will um, agree to come back and discuss other things in the future if we get some demand for it. And, um, <clears throat> and I'll put some links to the different things that we mentioned during this podcast as well. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me again. And until next week, here's to affecting autism.